Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Thanks for joining me again. We have uh, the third installment of our Western Quail Tour. Uh, Hopefully you've listened to the episode with Kirby Bristow in Arizona on Mern's Quail and Wade's Arlingo, also from Arizona, on Gamble's Quail. Today, we're going to be talking about well, they're, they're a quail species with a million names. You know them as scaled quail. You know them as cotton tops. You know them as blue quail. The man that's going to break it down for us from 100 level courses to 400 level and getting giving us our doctorate in scaled quail is John Sherman, biologist with the Bureau of Land Management in New Mexico. How do you like that for an introduction, John? <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, New Mexico. <laughs> New, New Mexico. And also joining us for this episode back as my uh, trusty sidekick, Al Iden, our Western Regional Director, uh, the guy that's uh, hooked me up uh, with all of these great biologists to take the tour of Western quail species. Welcome back, Al. Hey, thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. And John, good to hear from you again. Always a pleasure talking to you, buddy. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, well, let's start, John, with um, an introduction to our audience. Tell tell our audience a little bit about who you are, where you grew up, um, wh- you know, where you went to school. Give them uh, uh, your background, your life, your life story in a few minutes. All right. Um, well, I my name is John Sherman. I am a uh, uh, a biologist, a wildlife biologist with the Bureau of Land Management. Um, I am currently the wildlife program lead for the Bureau of Land Management in New Mexico. And so, as far as biology goes, it's primarily uh, more focused at reading the research instead of doing the research because I'm no longer in the field. And um, although I try to keep my fingers in it, um, I've been with the Bureau. Um, for almost 35 years. Um, I was a biologist in the field, in the Carlsbad field office, the BLM, for 20 years. Um, I've been here in the state office uh, as the program lead for the last uh, 13, almost 14 years. Um, And before that, I worked for uh, the Forest Service uh, on a fire crew for six seasons. Um, I worked for the Mexico Department of Game and Fish uh, for a couple of years. And, um, yeah, I've lived in New Mexico all my life, was born and raised here, a place called Almogordo, New Mexico at the base of the Sacramento mountains. Did you grow up as a bird hunter as well? I grew up hunting quail and turkey and de- and deer and, and, uh, anything I could hunt that my dad would take me hunting for. And, uh, I grew up in Almogordo where we did have gambles. We had scale quail or blue quail and, uh, just had, uh, just a wonderful time. Um, had a game for a game warden friend that really got me into um, this kind of this uh, uh, background, this wildlife program, and 
didn't expect to go to work for the Bureau, but uh, he's the one that I can uh, uh, attribute my uh, want to be a wildlife biologist. And uh, specifically, I'm a habitat biologist, so I'm not a I'm not a species biologist like I would be if I worked for the Department of Game and Fish, uh, where the Bureau of Land Management manages the habitat. So, yeah. So does that mean your degree is more an ecologist as opposed to a biologist, or, or is it is that two completely different things? No, you could say that. Although back when I graduated, the you know ecology was just a class. And they had not put it as a as a, a title yet, yeah. but I certainly did have a lot of ecology in, in my coursework. Um, I also have a uh, a minor in law enforcement, hmm. intending to go into the game warden business. I have a, a degree in microbiology as well. Hmm. And uh, so, um, anyways, I uh, instead of going forth and and completing a master's degree, I. Uh, went to work and got hired on in 1987 by the BLM in Carlsbad. Okay. You're the first biologist that we've had on the podcast that works for the Bureau of Land Management as opposed to a state agency or, you know, the NRCS, uh, USDA. Um, and, and as you mentioned, you worked for the state for a while. What's different about working for BLM as a biologist? I mean, I think most folks know BLM owns or manages millions upon millions of acres. But I don't think most folks understand that there's biologists working to improve habitat on BLM, just like they do in the Forest Service. I think that's it's sort of intuitive when you can see the trees, you know, but most folks see BLM and think, well, desert and rangeland. And it's not as natural of a connection for, for a lot of people. Right. Um, well, so the main difference would be just like I mentioned before is, is habitat versus species. Not mm -hmm. that they, they're separate because we partner with Department of Game and Fish all the time on projects and they and vice versa. Um, but, you know, the, the, the foundation of any species is the habitat. If you don't mm -hmm. have good habitat, you're not going to have the animals there. And the four components, you know, the basic components of the habitat are the food, water, cover, and shelter. And, and like you said, BLM has a lot of the space um, that's a part of that as well. 278 million acres nationwide. And that doesn't, wow. I mean, there's, there's subsurface estate that we manage all the way back, back to the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And uh, the mineral estate, you know, back in, uh, so... Um, you know, the, the, the habitat is the, the, the most important part of a, a good quail crop as well as a good mule deer crop or, or right. antelope or whatever you, um, you know, whatever you want to bring up, whatever species you want to talk about. That's the basis. So, so John, kind of dig in a little bit deeper on the multi-use aspect of BLM. I think that's something that maybe a lot of our folks may not understand. That, you know, our, our membership understands private land and all that, but BLMs get responsible for that multiple-use aspect of land management. How does biology fit into that? So I'll, I'll use an example to answer that question. When I first came to work at the Bureau in the middle of the Permian Basin in Carlsbad. I mean, we were in the middle of the oil field. And back then in the 80s, 
you know, it was going, uh, they were just drilling ver vertical wells. They weren't drilling these big horizontal wells and that fracking wasn't an issue. We didn't do it back then, or they, at least they didn't on, on a regular basis. And so, you know, I really didn't know what I got myself into. And so, um, soon find out that the most important part of my job back then was working with the other specialists, including the oil and gas folks, which is a, a use of the public lands, the range, the livestock grazing folks, which is also a use of the public lands. We had recreation. We have caves that provide habitat for a number of species, bats and others, but there's a lot of recreation that goes on in those caves. So recreation was something you had to uh, deal with and you had to deal with the recreation specialist. You had to work with right-of-ways, big pipelines and power lines that are going across the country. And, and back in, the, back in um, uh, the 80s and 90s, I was uh, monitoring the lesser prairie chicken and we had upwards of 35 active leks uh, in the Carlsbad field office on public land back then. And so it was the, the multiple use was something that a biologist had to take hold of. You have to grasp, you have to understand it. You have to be willing to stand up for your resource, but you have to be willing to work with uh, the users of the public land, as well as the other resource specialists that are working alongside you. Um, it is a challenge. Um, you have to be willing to give and take. Um, you know, it, it, and I learned a lot. I would not trade my background for anything. I've got a sound uh, foundation in oil and gas and range management in um, recreation and in uh, how, in, how to manipulate them. And, you know, one of the main things of that that I learned, probably one of my strong points is the partnerships that I got out of that. Those companies that are out there drilling wells, they're also partners and most of them are hunters and fishermen. And um, they don't, they're not out there to destroy the habitat. And so I would partner with them to build watering units or to uh, enclose a playa for waterfowl or for, uh, and they love to do that kind of work. So those oil companies, um, they did a lot of work back in the day and they're continuing to do that kind of work um, in Carlsbad and places where they have the opportunities. So I set up this particular episode, or the, actually this entire series of episodes on Western quail species with a call to Al and said, hey, I want, I want to talk to the biologist in the country who is known as your Merns expert, right? And that's where Kirby Bristow came together. And then who's the Gambles expert? And that was Wade Zerlingo. When I said, I'm ready to talk scalies, cotton tops, blue quail, the name he instantly said was John Sherman. So tell me in your mind, John, what makes you, why, why, and why would Al leap to, well, John is just passionate about scalies. What, what do scaled quail mean to you? What do they mean to me? Huh? I never thought about, never asked myself that question. Um, a lot of fun. Um, a, a lot of camaraderie because over the years, I've had, I got to the point where people back from the back, from the actually Midwest and uh, back East, Southeast would come out here every year and they would spend a month hunting mm -hmm. scale quail with me. 
bring their dogs. They might, some of them might have 10 dogs. They bring horses with them mm. and uh, they camp. And so a lot of uh, camaraderie, a lot of friendships were developed through hunting quail. Um, just, uh, I just had a blast in growing up and in Carlsbad hunting quail. It was just so fun to, and, and one of the things is in Carlsbad, you have the east side, which is primarily Chenery Oak. It's the lesser prairie chicken habitat. And you've got your scale quail out there. You've also got bob whites. We've got bob whites. Mm. This is one of the amazing places in that <clears throat> possibly, very possibly, I've had a couple of guys do it. You could kill four species of quail in two days from here. You could get bobs, scalies, merns, and gambles wow. in, two, in two days. And that's just, you know, the Tularosa Basin. And then up on top of the Sacramentos, we have merns or harlequins or fool's quail, whatever you want to call them. And then, so anyways, but um, it's, um, you know, back in the day, um, now I've kind of forgot where I was going with this, but anyways, the camaraderie <laughs> yeah. that uh, these individuals brought, there was a place out on the Jowl Highway, which is a, um, a, a road that goes from Carlsbad to the town of Jowl. And this individual from the southeast part of the United States, South Carolina, would come out here every year and bring this, this, uh, um, uh, oh, it was uh, one of those live-in um, uh, horse trailer, horse okay. trailer with a front that you could live in. And, and uh, he would bring his horse and he had like 10 dogs, English pointers, short hairs. He had some Britneys and uh, he would spend a month out here. And, uh, I mean, he may not even kill, uh, uh, kill more than one or two quail out of each covey. And he just loved coming out here. So I would put him on the east side mm -hmm. over where the Shinnery Oak is out off the Jowl Highway. Then we have, if you take the Pecos River that runs north and south, comes out of the Pecos Wilderness. On the west side, then you get into this limestone country, which is the, you know, uh, a lot more rocky. It's more typical Chihuahuan desert. It's everything pokes you. Um, you got to watch out, you know, not only for every bush, but all the snakes. And But that's where I always hunted. And I would boot my dogs because at least for the first couple of weeks, they would uh, bloody their paws, you know, on the rocks. So I would boot them up, um, you know, until they started getting calluses. And, um, and, we would go to the west side and, and you asked me, well, why would you go to the west side? And, and, and it's not your typical scale quail, but some of the coveys over there I would get into would be, you know, over a hundred birds mm. and, and, and down in these steep canyons that you can't drive to and, and you only see them when you're out there deer hunting. I would go back in there and hunt these big coveys of these big drainage bottoms and they would Oh man. And it was just, we just had a blast. And mm. so I've taken people back in there and, and onto the West side into the Guadalupe's, the base of the Guadalupe's. And uh, yeah. Um, so why are, I, I went through a whole bunch of stuff. Why are scale quail important to me or, or they've brought me a lot of fun, a lot of satisfaction. They've uh, given me a target to manage for, mm -hmm. um, Especially, um, and I don't know if this is the appropriate time, but there's a there's a program that New Mexico BLM initiated back about 2005 called Restore New Mexico. 
And one aspect of that program is the treatment of mesquite in the lesser prairie chicken habitat. Well, mesquite is a very, very important species for scale quail, but it also acts as a barrier for uh, lesser prairie chicken to move. They will not move beyond it. Hmm. It is a, and it's an encroacher. It's, uh, it's invaded. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the density of mesquite in some of the areas out in the lesser prairie chicken country exceeds the ecological site description that the NRCS has put out. And so what do you do? I mean, you're killing a bush that scale quail, I mean, uh, if, there's a mes- if there's a covey of quail out there, if it's not around the water, if you see a big mesquite bush, that's where you're going to find the covey of quail. Hmm. So, but our effort is killing those for the lesser prairie chicken hmm. on the east on the east side. So, we've tried to build in a little bit of let's leave this patch, let's leave this patch. If we don't have active leks, let's not do as uh, you know significant of a treatment, that kind of thing. So, um, it's given me a target for for uh, uh, trying to manage for multiple species. It's given me a heck of a lot of fun, and it's given me a lot of uh, uh, friendships and camaraderie over the years. That it's real interesting how you talk about mesquite and the balancing act that you have to play managing for a species that's uh, um, in serious trouble in the lesser prairie chicken, while balancing that with uh, the scale quail. That you know it. It's not like that. Those numbers aren't exactly booming all over the, the the geography as well. And that that just goes to show like, you know, the web of life is complicated, right? You pull on a thread yes. and it uh, impacts everything. Um, well, give, give us a short soundbite on uh, lesser prairie chicken. How are they doing in New Mexico at, at present? So um, I'm currently in the Roswell field office. I moved down from Santa Fe about four months ago. In this field office is the last uh, stand on federal ground for the lesser prairie chicken. And we actually, um, and I can't give you specific numbers, but uh, the numbers this last year, uh, which would have been March, April of 2020, actually the number of birds per lek as well as the number of active leks increased. Hmm. And so they are holding their own. Um, but boy, this year is the driest I have ever, ever seen it over here. I mean, and I've lived here all my life. I've never seen it, or I don't remember ever seeing it this dry. Hmm. Uh, so we'll see, um, you know, what the this drought and, you know, brings this spring with when we start doing the lex survey so i'm familiar like from what i understand kansas would be the stronghold of states left for lesser prairie chicken populations what other states have lesser prairie chickens beyond kansas and new mexico at, at present kansas new mexico colorado the eastern side texas and oklahoma okay have the lesser prairie chicken um, Nebraska may have some, but mainly they're graders. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So those are the five. And Texas still has some fairly good populations in the panhandle. Um, 
Oklahoma, they've got a few spark, but they're not, their numbers are not doing well at all. Hmm. Um, yeah. So New Mexico still got a fairly, we have a, a ranch that we manage specifically for um, lesser prairie chicken called the sand ranch. And in fact, we just uh, this morning uh, in the office, we're interviewing by a potential biologist to take over a position there to run that ranch and wow. keep uh, the water systems up. And, and so we have some really good candidates. So, yeah. Outstanding. All right. I'll, I'll turn our attention back to scalies. I mentioned scaled quail, cotton tops, blues, uh, any other names by which uh, people know this, this species of quail? No, that's the, those are the, the three. Those are the three that I know of them as, you know, scale quail, blues. Um, yeah. Cotton tops. I've heard all three of them used in the oil patch and, and in New Mexico, my life. Yeah, you bet. So beyond New Mexico, what's their geographic range? You know, I think if you were to draw a line north to south, uh, say the take off the, the eastern third of New Mexico and draw a line north south going up that way and then west, I think probably over to probably Utah, wouldn't you say, Al? I think yeah, yeah, there's a few in Utah. You know, um, they come and go. When you start getting north and the colder weather, you start getting – that's a limiting factor mm -hmm. for them. Um, I noticed when I lived in Santa Fe, you know, we had a few sparse coveys, but um, because the snow lasts longer up there and they can't get to the food, the numbers just fluctuated greatly, a lot more than down here in the southern end of the state. And uh, it, it that not only does that snow um, – keeps them from getting it crusts over and that's kind of the the impact uh you know versus a pheasant uh you know a pheasant can sure deal deal with that stuff so anyways yeah yeah i think i i know well i've hunted them in southern kansas cimarron national grasslands has them I believe uh the comanche in yep. uh southeast uh, colorado i've hunted them in west texas um and obviously in arizona has them um, I yeah. don't think they go, do they go into Nevada? They, they've got some in Nevada. Oh, they don't. I thought maybe the Southeast corner, uh, if you go up from, uh, Kingman, I thought on, uh, mm -hmm. along that. Okay. But it's I possible. John. Yeah, most, it's possible. I don't know. Most folks would point to, you know, what, like, Wyoming is to sage grouse, right? The sage grouse capital of the country is Wyoming. The pheasant capital would be South Dakota, right? Mm -hmm. uh, arguably, anyways, for, for yeah. some folks. Yeah. The scaled quail, a lot of folks would point to New Mexico as the scaled quail capital of the country. Would you agree with that? Probably I would, yeah. Um, especially the southern half. Um, we've got, in good years, Oh, we got a lot of quail. I mean, last <laughs> year was a good year. This year, not so much. There's pockets, but not so much. Um, yeah. I'll tell you a story real quick um, about that. So I had a friend. He's actually moved up into your part of the country, uh, Nebraska. Um, and he worked for here, the Fish and Wildlife Service. Well, I showed him one of my honey holes down here for hunting scale quail. And it's a, just a little canyon. It's just off the beaten path. 
every time I've gone in there, I've got my limit, you know, ah. and without a dog. And so once I showed him, let me tell you, he and he was within an hour drive time from Albuquerque to get to that place. Ah. So he would go down there on a regular basis um, and he would do quite well, take his son down. Um, they would do quite well. Well, this year, um, very few. The, some of the coveys are three and four birds. So I told him, I said, why don't we just leave that area alone and mm. just let, let those uh, proliferate a little more and maybe they'll come back for next year and the next couple of years. So, so that's the west side. East okay. side's a little better. So that's a great transition to let's dive into the biology of scale quail a little bit and what makes a good year versus a bad year. So let's start with, um, uh, you know, mating season and what makes for good conditions for, for scale quail. Walk us through the, the biology, particularly the reproduction of scaled quail. So you've got to have two things for them to be successful at, uh, bringing off a clutch of eggs to, you know, uh, mature birds. You've got to have water, moisture, and you've got to have insects. Mm -hmm. And you've got to have green, some green vegetation. So I'll say three things. So the water and the vegetation can be the same if we get some moisture. Right now, we're finding that they have to have freestanding water. I mean, our even our... Um, uh, ambient air, uh, the humidity is like 3% uh, over here. Some mornings, there is absolutely no moisture in the air and there's no moisture in the vegetation. Hmm. So I've seen birds watering, actually drinking um, in several, several places out there, uh, both sides. Um, so they've got to have moisture rainfall at the right time of the year. And it doesn't have to be a huge amount, I've found. I mean, you don't have to have months of rain to bring off a good quail crop. If you've got some good rain, good soaking rain for just a few days, that oftentimes is the what it, they need, not only to, uh, you know, soften the eggshells, uh, produce green veg forbs, those weeds we call them, mm -hmm. you know, like croton and and moss rose or, uh, uh, you know, some of the other forbs that are out there, sand sagebrush, uh, that's a half shrub. Those things um, rely on the moisture. And when they're vigorous, when they're green, then the quail, those little chicks, they use them. Also the insects. So have you ever been to a water uh, uh, that has freestanding water, like a livestock water or a, sure. one, of our, one of our drinkers? Most oftentimes, you will find bugs floating on the water. You will find a lot of um, uh, wasps, a lot of bees, a lot of uh, um, a, a lot of bugs in general. And I've sent, I have watched. In fact, I was going to send Al a picture of a uh, one of our game cameras. I've seen these whole coveys come up to a little drinker, and they sit there and they pluck those insects off the top of the water. Huh. Um, so that amino acid that is critical that comes from those insects, that is essential. And um, um, they do use freestanding water. They've, I've seen them use and actually drink from freestanding water um, all but one month of the year. Hmm. And uh, 
I mean, we're in the middle of the Chihuahuan Desert here. So um, I don't believe that that water is necessary throughout all of their range. But I do believe that certain times of the year when the, um, um, you know, the um, like I said, the humidity gets down to where it's, you know, probably 10 percent or below or maybe 5 percent or below. I don't know that threshold, but there is no moisture in the vegetation. And that's that's a kind of a backup. That's where they normally from that green vegetation can get some of that moisture. Hmm. Uh, they they need pretty good cover herbaceous grass cover. Um, they've also, like I said before, big mesquites usually have a lot of like vine mesquite grass or bush muley grass growing up around the base, which provides really good cover uh, for nesting. You'll find them in those big mesquites. Um, in shrubs, they also, those big bushes provide cover for overhead predators, you know, raptors, mm. marsh hawks. Uh, or Northern Harriers tend to be a uh, quail killing machine. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen them out there, uh, you know, just hovering over the top of a bush, you know, back and mm -hmm. forth, back and forth. And they're out there. There's usually a lot of times there's a covey of quail there. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, this quail, as with several quail, I don't know that all of them, but a lot of the species of quail are polyandry, whereas the the male will assist the female in building nests in even incubating so the female can lay more than one clutch um and so that in good years i don't think that's probably something they do every year mm -hmm. but certainly in good years when the uh the conditions are are there the males will actually help uh you know incubate build more nests and so that's why you get these big booms or that's one of the reasons you get these big quail numbers uh responding you know um one thing i've noticed while i was in carlsbad there's all of these uses of the public land uh you know there's road development there's well pads that are built there's power lines there's fences there's uh roads uh there's cattle grazing and and if you get good years of rain then most of those uses are I won't say benign, but they are, they're less impactful mm. to quail populations. But when you start getting drought, then that drought intensifies the impacts of those different uses. So they too can, can cause, you know, some problems um, with, you know, various habitat components, you know, water, I mentioned space is a biggie quail, seem to do well in, um, you know, a number of areas, you know, disturbance doesn't seem, you see them crossing the road all the time. Um, there you find them around well pads. Um, how many hunters have you talked to that, you know, hunt around waters, you know, livestock mm -hmm. waters, right. you know, that's where they hunt. Windmills. Uh, windmills, mm -hmm. uh, troughs that leak water over the side and onto the ground. And that generates that green veg and, and, uh, so, you know, uh, th this quail doesn't seem to be, um, you know, scared of the uh, or pushed out of those disturbed areas. Um, you know, certainly if you get um, areas that are denute of vegetation, um, they're not going to be there. Uh, you're not going to find them. They, um, one of the 
really good feed sources that they use over here. There's two of them. One of them is, is gutaresia or snakeweed. Hmm. And the seeds, and you know, snakeweed is an invader. It, it is cyclic in nature, but it responds to, I think, bare ground. I mean, the system is set up to where, you know, that we've got this bare ground out there for whatever reason. Maybe it was, uh, uh, you know, grazed heavily or maybe it was uh, burned. So what is the first thing that responds? It's usually these, these weeds, the mustards, and snakeweed is one of those. And, you know, New Mexico State did a bunch of studies. They've got ranches um, all over New Mexico that they've, they've looked at snakeweed for years, you know, and how cyclic it is. And, and if you just don't worry about it, that eventually it's just going to go away with proper management. But um, quail love the seeds from those snakeweed. Hmm. So, um, you know, they do well in some of those disturbed areas where that has been one of the uh, invaders um, and there's not much else. Hmm. Um, so and you'll see them. Usually they don't fly much in those situations. Usually they just run the tar. And that's where uh, you you certainly need to bring your tennis shoes because uh, <laughs> uh, even early on in the season, you know, if you want to shoot one on the wing, you may or may not be able to. These scale quail, they are good runners. Um, they're, yeah, very good runners. And uh, uh, certainly now, um, you know, if you get them up off the ground, it's you're doing quite well, even with a dog. Um, so you, you've covered a ton of ground that I want to ask a couple questions about. Um, when we talked to um, Wade, he talked. To, he compared gambles and scalies a little bit in the type of habitat they live in, and he talked about gambles tend to gravitate to more vertical structure uh, around cactuses, whereas scalies they're a little bit more grassy area, not as much vertical. Um, it, I get the sense that that's pretty similar in New Mexico, uh, but mesquite. I've seen more mesquite in New Mexico and West Texas than I ever see in Arizona. What's, what's the comparison in New Mexico gambles and scalies habitat wise and where they live, or is there a lot of crossover? There is some crossover in Las Cruces. You will find scalies running with gambles and vice versa and coveys each, each covey running in the same Choya patch. Um, but in New Mexico, primarily where you find gambles um, or where I have found gambles are going to be more along either wet drainages or drainages where you have a little bit heavier cover. Um, and, and it may be vertical cover. You may get um, more Apache plume, more sumac, roost, um, certainly more uh but, but I've found gambles in those or uh, scalies in those same places. Um, gambles tend to, at least if they have the opportunity, they tend to associate with riparian areas mm -hmm. uh, in New Mexico. Well, that's a hundred percent accurate from what Wade said as well. Cause we, we talked about water and washes and I kind of took the leap to more cactus, more, I mean, there is more, vegetation there because of the water. So Wade absolutely connected gambles to, to, 
to, to water. So that's, that's right. consistent. Right. But now, uh, you know, and, and scale quail are labeled as a grassland bird. I mean, in, 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 uh, the IMBCR, you know, they, uh, they list scale quail as a grassland bird. I have found that homogeneous grasslands that have no shrub component are, you're not going to find quail there. And if you do, they're not going to be there very long because they have to have that structure and it may not have to be very thick. A, a bush here, sumac is a really good one. Also mesquite, um, you know, they grow in little patches. And so you will find scale quail around those primarily because uh, there, there may be a food source there mm -hmm. uh, like sumac. There's a berry with mesquite. There's, there's usually uh, a grass or herbaceous that's a little more the shaded. So it's a little more succulent, but it also provides that cover from overhead raptors from yeah. the predators. And um, I, I don't know how many times I've seen um, mainly Harris or not Harris Hawks, but marsh Hawks or Northern Harrier, um, prairie falcons are pretty good too, but mainly those northern harriers, man, they are their death on on scale quail. And if they are out there in the grassland where there's just a a, a clump of grass, even right. if it's just a drop seed, you know, which is pretty good size, they're sitting out there like, you know, they're gonna get it. Yeah, that, and I I recall a conversation on an earlier podcast about a year ago with Dwayne Elmore with Oklahoma state oh, and Dwayne's yeah. a great guy. Right. But he said virtually the same thing about Bob whites in the connection to shrubs um, that you said about uh, scalies. And if, if you just have a, a homogenous grassland without the shrubs, it just doesn't work for the quail species. So that's, right. it's, it's really interesting to see these consistencies, even across species and across states. And, and it really, I mean, when you compare Oklahoma to New Mexico to Arizona, I mean, pretty different landscapes. I mean, there's right. some, there are some similarities, but they're pretty different. And, pretty and different. no one, you know, it, it, I always think about, you know, if, if you're a fisher, if you're an angler, you know, you, you think about the structure underwater Right, just take the water out and you think about how a bass relates to structure. Birds are the same way. They Dang relate right. to structure. The structure differs just like a bass differs. Like an Arkansas bass is relating to a different structure than a boundary waters bass in Minnesota. A different kind of structure, but a rock is a rock is a rock. You know, I mean, there, there's there, right. so it's 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 interesting to draw that parallel between quail and shrubs because there's a inner, you know, absolute linkage there. Uh, right. The next thing I wanted to ask about comparing gambles to scalies versus Bob whites is my perception is scalies are more like gambles in their ability to have a population explosion during the right conditions compared to say Bob Whites and Merns. Like they can they they can explode too, but it feels to me, or at least to what I understand, like scalies are more like gambles and they can have larger numbers of clutches and higher potential for like potentially double clutching given the right conditions. So in a 
really good year, Scalies like Gambles can go, you know, have a hockey stick sort of explosion compared to some of the other birds. Is that accurate? It is very accurate. Um, and, and I'll give you, even I'll dive into it a little bit deeper because we have Bob Whites also here. And so what I've seen with scale quail is um, a limited amount of rainfall at the right time can bring on significant numbers of, of scale quail. Ooh. If we have a lot of rain, especially coming in from the east side, then I have noticed that the bobwhite populations move further and further west hmm. as it gets wetter. And I don't know if that, is, and that's just something back in the day when we would do lesser prairie chicken surveys, we would also do bobwhite call counts. And every time we would hear a bobwhite call, so anyways, we would put a mark. And so we would, I did some correlation with moisture. And so as we would get into wet years, and when I say wet years in New Mexico, we've got here about a 12 inch average and uh, rainfall, annual average rainfall. And so, or average annual rainfall. And so um, if we get good monsoons that usually start about July and a good monsoon will run through September. If we get a couple of those in a row, then you can start seeing the Bob whites that are really associated with more of a humid Texas, you know, that's because that's where they're coming from is out mm. of Texas. Then that humidity supports that population, even without actual rainfall. But as we start, we don't have the humidity here. I mean, we do, but nothing like that. Um, as we can start to get more rainfall um, over a two or three year period, then you'll start to see the bob white numbers increase as well as move this way. Hmm. And it's almost like the, the, that humidity is increased because of the rainfall, as well as there's, there's I, I believe there's probably a cover or a vegetation uh, component that is causing that bob white to respond in that way. Um, maybe the shinnery oak, um, I don't know, maybe more grasses, we have drop seeds. When you get south into Carlsbad, you it's in the Southern desert. So you have this SD3 soils. And then as you get north, you have these Canadian plains. Um, and so, the, both of them can respond so much to this, to, to a little bit of moisture and the quail, the, the, the scale quail. And you know, one of the indicators, if you were to put a, uh, back in the day, the game and fish used to put up, set up these wing barrels for you to drop the, a, a wing in, mm -hmm. you know, and if you can look at those and uh, a good percentage of your wings are immatures, then you know you had a good quail mm -hmm. and that you're not really impacting the population, you know, by harvesting a, a lot of quail. And that was the case for many years in a row, um, probably around, I don't know, 2001 forward. We had some really good years and just huge hmm. uh, patches of scale quail, really good hunting. When you talk about bobwhites moving, to kind of follow rains and vegetation. How, like, what's the distance we're talking about in a, a Bob White's movement to chase ideal conditions? Probably not more than, oh, I'm going to say probably 20 miles. 
But um, still, like, stop for a second, because like a Bob White, like what we know about Bob Whites, is they they tend to have their entire life cycle live in a two mile radius. Is that? Is yeah, but but that's so. What I'm saying though is there's always a population of Bobs. Yeah. To this point, and so, but not in my opinion, a huntable population. So you may have two or three birds. I've actually seen some scale quail coveys with a Bob white in them huh. uh, or a Bob white or two. In fact, I've got some great pictures of them in water. So they hold on, but during then when you get these good moisture years, two or three of them in a row, then those numbers just balloon. And because of the seed, I'll, I'll use the term seed, sure. There may be two or three here, two or three there. I don't know what the, what is left. If I had, a, if I could go out there with a dog, I could probably get a good idea of what Bob White numbers were left out there. But their numbers fluctuate extremely in drought. Yeah, here here in New Mexico, they fluctuate very very much so. And when I say move, I don't mean that these birds actually fly in from Texas. Um, their numbers increase coming this way as the rainfall. Gotcha. But nevertheless, happens. an expansion of a population, whether or not it's an individual bird, an expansion of a population over a couple of years at 20 miles, I mean, that's, that's still remarkable based upon, you know, favorable weather and suitable habitat. Yeah. It, yeah. It speaks and, and to I'm their... Right. It speaks to their viability, really. Right. And, and you know, uh, they're a lot. I, I kind of compare them with Merns because they, they, you know, Merns in our country are, uh, you know, they're in more like uh, the Arizona has up around Springerville. You know, they're in the, we're in the Pine Stringers and the, the Gambles Oak and uh, Scrub Oak after a fire. Mm. And so I kind of compare Merns quail with, the Bob whites more so that they're, they flush the same. They, um, at least here, um, and, and, and they're more secretive, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, yeah, I grew up hunting Merns quail too. I mean, I've been scared. <laughs> Usually when you're elk hunting is when you find them, you know, <laughs> but it's a perfect transition. Cause I want to transition to, um, to hunting part of the conversation. And, and I'll ask you a, a layup question right from the get-go. Is New Mexico the most underrated bird hunting state in the country? Um, who underrates it? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody that doesn't live there. Uh, yeah, I guess so, because although I think that the, the popularity of hunting quail in New Mexico, at least the southeast corner, can't speak for any of the other places. I think the western, southwestern corner is probably as popular as well. But southeastern corner, people have figured it out. Mm. And um, I mean, they from all over, I get calls. I used to get calls in Santa Fe. And people would say, how's the quail population in, down in Carlsbad and Roswell? I'm coming out there. Um, I would get dozens of calls 
from people um, wanting to come hunt scale quail in New Mexico. So I think that underrating category is starting to elevate. Hmm. And um, um, I worked for a guy on a, uh, outside the BLM years ago on a ranch in Texas. And he wanted me to sell, set up a, uh, a, a watering system and do some habitat work. And so his quail numbers, scale quail numbers, um, could be improved so he could bring hunters from South Texas and all over. And at least for a time, um, that was quite an operation for him. Hmm. Um, I don't know how many hunters he had, but I think, that kind of operation gives people an idea of, wow, this scale quail hunting versus bobwhite hunting, this is fun too. Mm-hmm. You know, we could get out there, we can, they would drive around in a, in a vehicle until they saw a covey or until they got to a water and then they would get out. And uh, yeah, um, I think that underratedness has for the West and Southeast corner and West Texas has, has certainly elevated. Okay. Yeah. So you're driving. Well, first of all, it, correct me if I'm wrong. There's a just ton of public land in New Mexico to go bird hunting, correct? 13 million acres just in BLM. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So I'm driving down the road and I, I want to identify, let's say, 100 acres <laughs> of the 13 million. How, how do I identify where I should pull up on all that BLM land to, to get my dog out of the box and go for a walk. So there is a couple of, I'll give you three things. If you're planning to come hunting in New Mexico, I'll give you three things that you can do one of the three. So there's these, uh, these downloads for uh, map coverages. Um, Onyx, I think is one of them. Onyx map. Sure. Yeah, that's one of them. It's got some pretty good coverages. It costs. You have to buy it. You have to buy it for the state. Um, You can download it on your phone. We actually have one in New Mexico that we have partnered with the Game and Fish, uh, New Mexico Department of Game and Fish. Um, It's called Carry Map. And so you download Carry Map. It's an app off of the App Store. Or uh, if you've got an iPhone, you can download that. And then there are directions on the Game and Fish website. As to once you download that app, you go in and the BLM are the ones that provide the maps. And so you download that map and there's several of them you can choose from uh, bigger and and, or smaller in size in in, uh, megabytes because of topography or whatever you want. And it will give you a land ownership coverage. And it the carry map actually has waters on it. Uh, it has land ownership. It has, if you download the right one, topography. Um, and so it's very accurate. It's updated every year. Very accurate as far as uh, where you're on BLM, uh, if you're on forest, if you're close to private mm-hmm. land or deeded land. It also gives you the layer for the state land. And during the hunting season in New Mexico, the Game and Fish has purchased access for all of those hunters that possess a hunting license for that species. So if you've got a uh, upland game license, you are allowed to hunt state land as well, as long as you're hunting quail or something that requires a license. Um, you're not allowed to hunt coyotes on state land because there's 
they're not a protected species and you can't buy a license for hmm. hunting them. You can hunt them on BLM land or on Forest Service land. Hmm. Um, they don't require a license. You can hunt rabbits. We don't require license for rabbits. They're non-game. Um, and so uh, the third way, so you've got the two electronic ways. The third way would be to stop in to a local BLM office and we have what we call one to 100,000 color quads. They are a map that will give you a uh, one to 100,000 means that a mile is about three quarters of an inch. Um, we have land ownership on there. They're updated, not annually, but they're, most of our maps are pretty up to date. And um, if there has been any land exchanges and subsequent updates to the maps, then usually there's a, an addendum to that map. There'll be a, a printout that they'll give you along with that map or whatnot. I would suggest that if you're coming to hunt New Mexico, that you do one of those three things okay. and to ensure that you're going to be hunting on public land. Um, you can camp on BLM land in most places. There are some areas that there, that camping is limited. Um, and in most cases, all two tracks are open uh, for hunting. Um, there are some areas that are wilderness and or wilderness study areas that you need to know about so you don't drive off road. Mm. Uh, but, there are, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, um, I just uh, had an email from a guy coming. It's going to come hunt Barbary sheep from Washington state. And he had 30 questions for me. It took me, I just answered him this morning, it took me about 30 minutes to answer those questions. But I told him, I said, make sure, you know where you are because there's private land, there's, um, you know, other, there's military land where sure. he's going to go. And yeah. So if you, so you got one of these three map options, so you know you're on public land, but from a visual perspective, so I'm thinking about how we talked with Wade about keying in for washes in water to find gambles from using your eyes how would you describe somebody to look at a landscape and say, that's where I'm going to go walk and find quail, scaled quail? So um, if I were what I because of what I know, if I were coming hunting to a place, any place in New Mexico to hunt scaled quail, if I found a water, I would park, a, you know, a ways from it, get out and walk about a, a half to three quarter of a mile perimeter mm. around that water. That's and and from that point you may find that there's quail coming up a drainage from that. But anyways, that would be my first okay. um, first option would be I would hunt if I saw water, I would hunt around that water. Um, in at least in the southeast corner of the state and 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 pretty much in the western side the draws or the drainages in the middle of the Chihuahuan desert that provide a lot of cover. They have um, usually a lot of feed in them. They've got, uh, you know, plains, plains, bristle grass, the drop seeds. That's usually where you're going to find them in association there. You know, if you've got range uh, livestock, hmm. sometimes in, in the growing season, you know, they will have, um, you know, out on a grass, grassy plain, they would have uh, eaten a lot of the seed heads, but in the bottoms, in the drainages, um, you can find these grass species that are protected by the big bushes, the 
And that's where a lot of the food is. Mm. And, uh, and especially as you get further into the season, especially maybe about, I would start thinking around 15th of December, our hunt starts around November the 15th mm-hmm. and goes to February the 15th. About a month in, I would definitely start looking in those more brushy areas mm. where the quail is going to hold tighter. It doesn't have to run. Um, but about January 15th, it doesn't matter where you are. <laughs> Get ready because you're uh, – yeah, you're going to have to have a dog that um, is out there about 100 to 150 yards. And if you see him going point, him or her, you better run. So you, you mentioned bring your track shoes to New Mexico. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and they start running more and more as the season progresses, progresses. And I'm assuming that's because of hunting pressure, right? Yeah, primarily. Um, yeah. It, you've also talked about hunting them without a dog. Um, is that something that people do successfully for scalies or, or is that more like when you were growing up before you had a dog, that sort of scenario? Well, you know, of course a dog is nice, especially for the retrieval Mm -hmm. part of it and the pointing, but uh, I've probably 50% of my hunting time in New Mexico has been without a dog. Is that right? Yeah. um, I've had Sherman short hairs primarily. uh, You know, I don't have one now. I just buried my female. Uh, my old female about a month and a half ago. Oh, sorry to um, hear that. But Daisy, yeah, she's she was a good dog. But I've had great success even without a dog. And uh, um, you know, usually it's the towards the beginning of the season and uh, mm. yeah, that first month or so. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, and that goes with scale quail. The bobs are the same way. Uh, although bobs, I do find that a dog is much more effective. When you're hunting the ball. and the merns and the merns quail, yeah, yeah, it's funny. The, the well, I guess it was the second time I hunted scale. The first time I hunted them was in West Texas, and they were really, really intermixed with the bob whites. And they they ran more than the bobs, but it wasn't well in comparison to the next time I hunted scalies was in Arizona, and now we're talking about them running. And I don't know if it was, you know, I was in West Texas in January. I was in Arizona in January. So a similar amount of time and pressure probably. But um, there was more mesquite in tech West Texas. So it felt like they'd get to the mesquite and sort of hunker a little bit more. Whereas when I was in Arizona, I was with a local guy. And, you know, we, we could see them running ahead. And it was kind of this grassy, deserty, rocky area. And he's like, "Run, Bob! We got to get up to them." And <laughs> and I, you know, I'm like, "Okay." So I start jogging. Well, I guess I'm running with a shotgun, right? Through through a desert with rocks and boulders and all the all this stuff. And I start start jogging, and he's like, "No, Bob, run." all right and i literally started sprinting and and they did when they when you get close enough on a sprint they 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 flush but that's that's a a new you know i've shot i've i've done wing shooting off of snowshoes i've done wing shooting off of cross-country skis 
I've never had to wing shoot off a dead run before. <laughs> uh, so yeah. that was a new experience for me. But that's true. Yeah. Like, it, it, this is the debate we had with Wade talking about gambles. Because I've always heard scaled quail are the track stars. Gambles quail, gambles quail will give you all you got too. Oh, it will. <laughs> it will. You bet. Yeah. I mean, I, actually, I don't know of any quail other than Merns, and I've never hunted mountain quail, um, but even bobwhites can run. Yeah. I, in, in our country, those bobs get in with those scale quail, and they run like the wind, you know. Um, and so, you know, but you're right. Um, and as you were talking, one of the other things that kind of happens later in the season to encourage more running than flushing is, um, you know, at least in the Chihuahuan Desert, and I think this is probably the case in the Sonoran as well, as you start getting into those early winter months or those uh, late winter months, I should say, your vegetation starts to get sparser and mm. certainly a lot thinner. And so um, that's why mesquite, they hold a lot better when you start getting into the shrubs versus if you get out into those grass lands where that sparse, where it's become sparser, they're going to run like the wind. <laughs> and, and I'm telling you, you better – you better start running because jogging isn't going to cut. That's right. <laughs> All right. What what uh, what shot size shot size do you use? What choke? What's your what's your gauge? What are you shooting uh, scalies with? I've got a twelve gauge Gerson, mm. uh, and I use I use just two and three quarters, seven and a half. Okay. Uh, if I if I can get steel, I use steel. Um, lately. The only thing left on the shelf has been uh, seven and a half lead, mm. you know, so I use seven and a half. Sometimes I use sixes. I use uh, modified in the early and then I change to a full choke as we get further into the okay. into the season, because it, when they do flush, it's going to be further out. Yeah. Yeah. What is yeah. the um, when, when you ride around and see folks out scale quail hunting in New Mexico. Well, any, for that matter, any bird hunting in New Mexico, what is the bird dog of New Mexico? What's the most popular breed or two that you see um, among residents? I'm going to say that the most I've seen probably two species are the German short hair and the English pointer. Okay. Um, and, and, and that over here on this side of the state, I mentioned earlier that everything pokes and yeah. most everything has seeds and burrs. Britneys, some people use Britneys, but man, they get matted up with all kinds of burrs and seeds. And so a short hair, German short hair, a Weimariner, I've seen some people use Weimariners, but English pointers, probably number one, and German short hair okay. number two. Uh, your favorite way to prepare squail, scaled quail on the plate? So I take my the breasts and I slice the breast off of the meat, the two pieces yep. of meat off the breast. I take those and I wrap them with a, a, a slice of bacon and I drop them in teriyaki sauce and let them soak. Okay. Then I pull them out, wrap a piece of green chili around them, and put them on the grill. <laughs> oh, and and when I had my kids at home, it was like a feeding frenzy. You know, I mean, they would, uh, I could have three, uh, 
you know, two or three people limit out and br- bring them all over. And, oh, man, they'd eat them all. I, so it, 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 I love yeah. – see, I always ask that question about not only is it important to talk about the full circle, right, from the habitat to the bird to the hunting to the plate, but I love the the local component of how people prepare their wild game. I mean, when I asked that question to somebody from New Mexico, I – Hundred percent expected to hear green chilies, <laughs> you right? And I'm so so yeah. thankful, John. You delivered because you know yeah. we, we've oh, all right. We we've, we've all had the jalapeno poppers, but if you would have said jalapenos in New Mexico, I would have been disappointed because I knew yeah. the chili was the quintessential uh, ingredient yeah. out of New Mexico. This is a capital, green chili capital, Hatch Green Chili. Yep. You know, that's Hatch, New Mexico. Yeah, and it's yeah. terrific. Um, have I missed anything along the way that people should know about scaled quail, cotton tops, blue quail? Uh, you know, I think if, if anybody is interested in hunting, I mean, I'm not one of those people that likes to, uh, you know, keep my hunting areas, you know, close to my side, or I, I would offer uh, to give anybody directions on, um, you know, hunting quail here in the Southeast corner of the state, or if I'm aware of, of other places like the Tularosa Basin, you know, it's wonderful place to come and hunt quail. And like I said earlier, if you're after that kind of grand slam of quail, Mm. you could probably kill one of every of four different species within a two day period. Wow. I've had two guys do it. Um, and so we just have a great, um, it's a great state. We've got, uh, you know, high elevation, low elevation. We've got grasslands. We've got a diversity of wildlife. Um, we got lesser prairie chickens to come and watch, yeah. uh, in the spring and boom, you know, and, uh, so it's just a great place. As far as scale quail, I mean, they're probably um, my favorite upland game bird uh, is the scale quail. I mean, I've been dealing with them most of my life. And, uh, you know, um, and so I welcome anyone that uh, would like to come hunt quail to contact me in Roswell at the BLM office there, John Sherman. And I'd be more than happy to. to Do you have an email address you're, you you can throw out? Yeah, it's. Do you want me to do it verbally? Sure. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's J S S H E R M A without the N at blm.gov. Outstanding. Thank you so much for your kindness. You you you, you open the door to thousands upon thousands of uh, pheasants forever and quail forever. Remember, right. and I'd echo like I have um, my sister in law lives in Santa Fe. And okay. uh, I, I get to New Mexico on a, a, every two-year basis. And the last time I went down was two Christmases ago. I drove with my bird dogs. And I did it right to a point. I drove um, through Nebraska and hunted, Kansas and hunted. <laughs> you, you get the idea. I drove all. But then when I got to New Mexico, I spent the time with family and Christmas. And I had 
all my dogs and shotguns and I didn't go hunt in New Mexico. So I think next Christmas, you'll probably get a phone call from B St. Pierre or an email from B St. Pierre at pheasantsforever.org asking for a point in the right direction because it's, it's like you say, it's just the topography in New Mexico is breathtaking from the, you know, the, the hills of Taos to the beautiful scenery around Santa Fe. I think about Diablo Canyon and, and um, down in Albuquerque. What's the name of the wildlife refuge south, south of Albuquerque? Yeah, with all the sandhill cranes. And it's just, it's, it's a stunningly beautiful, and I guess I'll stick to underrated, <laughs> a very underrated state and one that I've got to experience as a bird hunter myself. Uh, yeah, it is great. It is really great. Yeah. You know, I used to have one more thing. I tell you, there was a good friend of mine um, who worked for Ted Turner on uh, running the Armendaris Ranch. His name was uh, Tom Waddell. And uh, he used to work in Arizona. He was a game warden over there for years. And he and I used to have some long talks about scale quail. Because, you know, Tom uh, Ted Turner loved to hunt quail. So Tom would manage the ranch, the Armendaris and he and Tom and I had some of the most fantastic talks. And, um, you know, we would talk, he, he would tell me, he'd say, you know, we have these beautiful grasslands, but he said, all the quail are over on the BLM because they've got the mosquito over there. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, with that, that, um, that kind of, of camaraderie with professionals and he was retired, you know, it just brought me a lot of, of, of really, um, I just love talking to people about quail and Tom was a, a, and he's no longer there. I don't know where he is now, but we used to have some great talks. Dale Robbins, um, you know, he's a great, he's a good friend. Um, I used to be long, a t- long time ago. And, and uh, this is, I, I, I think probably before quail forever, I used to be the liaison for the BLM with an organization called quail and Limit. Huh. And uh, for years. And um, so I'm, I met a lot of individuals and that's how I brought a lot of them here and Dale and, and um, we went quail hunting and, and did a lot. It was fun. Well, now, now you're the liaison, the scaled quail liaison for quail, <laughs> for quail forever. So you can put that on the old resume going forward. <laughs> I love it. I, uh, this has been great. I just love doing this, Bob. Well, thank very, you. Very, very much. Al, yeah. any closing thoughts before we uh, wrap her up? No, not a whole lot other than, John, I'm going to take you up on I'll definitely visit you in Roswell next fall multiple times. And we'll, I'll, I want to see some of these honey holes and verify <laughs> the 100 bird covey. I might, I got to see that. <laughs> so when we would fly d- surveys for mule deer in the Guadalupes, with a helicopter, we would be so low that we would flush the quail. And that's how I learned about the big coveys because we would f- flush coveys of quail in the Guadalupes that would not quit flushing. Uh, I mean, oh, man. I mean, just, and so you're welcome, Al. I invite you over here and we'll go hiking. Well, we'll do an exchange. I found a place this year where I found more gambles quail in one spot than I've ever seen. And I, I, I'm not, trying to exaggerate here, but we, we probably kicked up 300 birds in this one drainage. It wow. was the most unbelievable thing I've seen. So, so next, next fall you come visit me and I'll visit you and we'll actually maybe do some work too, but we'll, uh, we'll definitely do some. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. 
<laughs> Sounds good. Very much. And Bob, you're always invited as well. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. And most importantly, John, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your time with our audience today. This has been really, really fun. All right. I appreciate it very much. It has been a great time. All right. Yeah. All right, folks. Thank you very much for listening to this terrific episode of On the Wing podcast focused on scaled quail. If you haven't ever traveled to the Southwest in search of scaled quail, put it on the list. New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Kansas, Colorado, there are just some wonderful opportunities to uh, hunt scale quail in the southwestern part of the United States. All right, folks, I am Bob St. Pierre saying always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening. Sure.